I want to talk to you this morning, brothers and sisters, believe it or not, about the complex and not at all simple subject of discouragement. Do you know, let me tell you something about discouragement. Every one of us will suffer from discouragement sometimes. Now let me put it this way. All of us suffer with discouragement some of the time. And some of us suffer with discouragement all of the time. Would you believe it? Some people have difficulty and they struggle all the time with discouragement. It seems like no matter what they try and do in their life, nothing goes with them and everything goes against them. But I'm talking to you as if you were the average person who experiences sometimes temporal discouragement and situations that go wrong in your life. Now you might go, I came into church this morning. It's a lovely summer's morning. I didn't come here to talk about discouragement. The reason I want to talk to you about it is this. Because I know what your life is like. And I know how complex your life is. I know that there are so many different variables going on in your life. Between your relationships and your finances and your career and your home and your children and your wife or your partner and your health. There's so much in your neighbours and the condition of your car. There's so much stuff. There's so many complications and complexities going on in your life that I know that in some area of your life, unless you are dead, there is something going wrong at the moment in your life. Because that's the human condition. There's something that isn't 100% right in some part of your life right now, and that's the reality of being human. And the reason I want to talk to you about discouragement is to say, why is Michael got a hurley in his hand? Discouragement is such a subtle thing. Discouragement can change the whole course of your life. Did you know that? Let me tell you something about discouragement. When I was a young lad, I grew up in Cork. Anybody here from Cork? No. All the Corkers. And when you're from Cork, and you're from the city of Cork particularly, when you grow up in the areas that I grew up in, you know what you wanted to be? You wanted to be a hurler. I wanted to be a hurler. I wanted to be one of the rebels. Go up the rebels! We used to shout at the hurling matches. I wanted to be a hurler. I wanted to have the slitty and the, the slitter and the hurley. In my opinion, the greatest field game in the world. Close second is rugby, but anyway, but the first one is definitely hurling, right? So it's the fastest field game in the world, and I don't understand why it's not played internationally, because I think Ireland would beat everyone, it'd be amazing. We'd be the world champions all the time. But, so when I, when I went as a kid to go and play hurling, something won, went wrong for me, however. You see, I would have played for the Cork County, I would have played for County Cork, I would have won an All-Ireland medal back in the late 80s or early 1990s, if it hadn't been for one thing. And the one thing was this, I couldn't hit the ball. I couldn't hit the ball. It's one of the key skills in hurling, and that is to be able to hit the ball. And if you can't hit the ball, you can't play hurling. It's no good. Was it my coordination? I didn't think my hand-to-eye coordination was that bad. I could do most other things that involved hand-to-eye coordination. But whatever it was, I simply couldn't hit the ball. At the odd time, I would hit it, and it would just kind of clip it, or would go a couple of meters, and it wouldn't go very far. And when you're a young kid, you want to fit in, you want to get on, you want to be the hero, you want to be the hurler who wins the All-Ireland for Cork. But I couldn't hit the ball. It drove me nuts. I was there going, what is wrong with me? There's so much good stuff in my life, but what is wrong with me that I can't hit the ball? And then people began to mock me. Here he comes, he can't even hit the ball. <laughs> Cork people can be so encouraging. And, uh, he can't even hit the ball. And my coaches kept on saying to me, they kept on saying, keep your eye on the ball. So I keep my eye on the ball, keep my eye on the ball. Keep my eye. No matter how much I kept my eye on the ball, keep your eye on the ball, I kept my eye on the ball. But I couldn't hit the ball consistently. I'd hit it the odd time, little clip, 
but I couldn't hit it consistently. And as a result, I couldn't play hurling. And so I became discouraged, and I walked from the hurling training pitch, dragging my hurling behind me, so disappointed and so discouraged, and spent most of my life going, I wish I could play hurling. I wish I was just able to get that thing right. Now flash forward about 40 years, right? About 40 years later, it's about maybe five years ago, believe it or not, it's only five years ago, I'm 50, 50, so like, yeah, it was about 10 years ago. So I'm out playing hurling one day, playing hurling. My son, my oldest son, Rory, said to me, Dad, come on out, we'll go, we'll play hurling. He loves hurling. He's a fine, big, tall, big, spindly young fellow. Like, I wouldn't tackle him, but uh, So, and he takes me out, and I said, yeah, but Rory, I can't hit the ball. And he said, what do you mean you can't hit the ball? Everyone can hit the ball. I said, I, I just don't, like, I've never been able to hit the ball. I can't hit the ball. What do I have to tell you? So he goes down, he goes down into the center field. He raises the ball and it's over the bar. Um, so I, I said, I can't hit the ball. He says, what do you mean? So I threw up the ball, swipe, complete miss. I said, I think it must be my hand-to-eye coordination. He said, do it again. So I did it again, complete miss. And he said, Dad, you're holding the hurley wrong. <laughs> what? Yeah. He said, you're holding the hurley wrong. He said, you mean holding the hurley wrong? He said, as you go to swing the hurley, you're flattening it out. And when you flatten the hurley, you miss the ball. <laughs> 40 years later, I missed all of those All-Ireland Championship winning medals because no coach or no friend said to me, Michael, you're holding the hurley wrong. And so I tried it. He said, what I want you to do, Dad, and Dad, I'm supposed to be saying to him, hey, son, let me coach you. He said, Dad, this is what I want you to do. Throw up the ball, keep your in the ball, and make sure you concentrate on keeping the hurley flat. And wallop, the ball shoots up the pitch. It's like, ah, ah, I found it, I found it. Maybe I'm going to play hurling for Cork yet. But I said, mm, don't think so, son. <laughs> but it was a strange thing. And I'll tell you the point, the reason I'm using that, using that to make a point is this. Sometimes it can just be something small that if we just change it, it can change our lives. Sometimes it can just be such a small thing. And we need someone to come alongside us and encourage us and build us up and pay attention and look at our, if you will, even our technique and say, no, you're holding the hurley wrong. Because we're so easily discouraged. That's my point. We're so easily discouraged. We get discouraged in so many ways, in so many different ways. Uh, thank you my, to my son Rory for helping me with that particular illustration, my little darling boy. Oh, yeah, what do we do? I don't need a mic, I've got a mic on. Um, see, I want to talk to you about the diagnosis of discouragement, right? And the reason I want to talk about the diagnosis of discouragement is because I've met lots of people in my life uh, as a Christian. I've met loads and loads of people, and I've met as a pastor loads and loads of people who describe themselves as being discouraged. And when you say to them, but why are you discouraged? They can't put their finger on it. They can't get it. Like, I don't know. I just don't feel like I just, I just don't feel in God's presence, and I, I just feel so discouraged, and I don't know what's going on in my life. But when you begin to dig down into it, you actually discover there's probably a cause. Did you know that when you go to a doctor, according to most estimates, eighty percent of his diagnosis is based on what you say. Eighty percent of the diagnosis. So you mustn't just go home and diagnose yourself. Like you're probably going to get more accurate anyway. I'm not suggesting that, of course. Okay, but. The point is this, we have to get into the detail if we're going to know what's wrong with us and what's discouraging us. You see, people say the devil is in the detail, but in my opinion, that's not where the devil lives at all. I think God is in the detail. I think the devil is in the fog. He's in the big, wide fog of discouragement and depression and disappointment that falls in our lives. He's in this amorphous 
fog and we don't know what's going on with us. And that's why the psalmist, when he asks this question, is asking a great question. Why am I so discouraged? Why is my heart so sad? It's important to dig down and a good friend or a good pastor or a good parent or a good brother or a good psychologist or a good counselor will help you to get under the bonnet, as it were, of your life and figure out the why are you so discouraged? What exactly is it? Because you might discover something that 98% of your life is great, but 2% of it is why you're discouraged and yet it spreads out over your whole life. This is what the psalmist said when he said, why am I discouraged? He said this, he made a decision. He, he looked at his life and said, why am I so discouraged? But what I'm going to do is instead of looking to discourage, I'm going to do this. I will put my hope in God. I will praise him again, my savior and my God. I will, I will. He takes action to resolve this situation. One of the main reasons in my experience why people become discouraged is because their hopes are sometimes too high. Who said your hopes can be too high? Are your expectations are out of keeping? Are your hopes or expectations are disappointed? Hopes and expectations are really, really important. Expectations, was said by one famous psychologist, are the seeds of resentments. We have expectations in our lives that things are going to go a certain way. But then they don't, it doesn't work out that way. I expected this job to be easier. Moon is going to have five jobs. She's going to expect one of them to be good. She's just, so I expected this job to be easier. I expected marriage to be easier than this and more fun than it turned out to be. I expected that my kids would be good kids and I wouldn't be a troubled parent. I expected that my career would go in a certain direction. I expected by now I'd be able to buy a house. I expected that girl would go out with me. I even had a shower to have before I asked her and everything, but she didn't go out with me. And so our expectations are disappointed and we become discouraged. Our hope begins to disappear. The book of Proverbs says this, hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a longing fulfilled is a tree of life. Hallelujah. You see, sometimes, and I, I particularly come across it with people who are dealing with infertility issues. Every month comes the monthly disappointment that says, no, not this month. No, not this month. No, not this time. No, not this time. And it can be really difficult and you can become discouraged and hopeless and despairing. And that's why we go with the psalmist and we say, I will trust in God. I will look to the Lord. You see, there's loads of ways in which we get discouraged. Um, as I said, these are just some of them. And this is by no means a comprehensive list of ways we get discouraged or anything of the like. But I want to draw from Nehemiah chapter 4, which I looked at a few weeks ago, about the guys who were rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem after they were ruined. And when they were rebuilding the walls, they had three enemy strategies that came against them. Discouragement, distraction, and deception. And that's what's drawn me to this idea of discouragement. So here's three ways in which they became discouraged. And I believe three diabolical discouragements or three diabolical methods of discouragement that get to work in our lives. The enemy loves discouraged Christians. They're his favorite type. They're his favorite type. Here's some of the ways in which they were discouraged. Mockery and ridicule. In Nehemiah chapter 4, the guys are building the wall. They're doing their best. They're trying their hardest to get the job done. And yet their enemies gather around them and they begin to mock and ridicule the work that they're doing. I don't know if you've ever had the work of your life mocked or the efforts that you were making mocked. I know I certainly did when I was hurling and that's only the least of my examples I can tell you. I've been mocked and ridiculed plenty of times in my life for the things that I tried to do. Here it is. 
That stone wall would collapse if even a fox walked along the top of it, it says in Nehemiah 4.2. They mocked them and they became discouraged because they were trying their best. And all they got was this mocking and this ridicule. Do you know some of you here this morning, hear the word of the Lord. That mockery and that ridicule is diabolical in origin. It is the devil's voice, not God's voice. Don't listen to that voice of mockery and ridicule in your life. Sometimes that voice was spoken 40 years ago. Sometimes that voice was spoken 50 years ago, 60 years ago, last week. And it just echoes around in our minds. It echoes around in our minds. That's one of the reasons we become uh, one of the many. Then, there, of course, there are threats and there are fears. We get threatened and we become discouraged. We become discouraged with the future because the future can be frightening. The future can be frightening. Here's what it says. The Jews who live near the enemy told us ten times over, ten times, they will come and it, from all directions and attack us. It's all bad news. It took, we're, we're doomed. We're doomed. Like, I don't know about you, but I watch the news occasionally. When I watch the news, my son, my middle son, Fionn, he comes in and he sees Elma and I. We like watching the news. We're better news junkies. And he goes, oh yeah, the bad news again. Here we go. I mean, he's only a young fella and he can see it. All the news, it's all bad and it's all threatening. And our future is doomed because climate change, we're all going to go up in a ball of smoke. And we're all going to be burned in our beds and then there's going to be nuclear war. And then the economy is going to collapse and we're all going to die. <laughs> ah, lads. I discovered a great way to cure that problem. Turn off the television. Hallelujah. <laughs> Deliverance. But threats and fear are some of the ways in which we become discouraged. We look at our future and we say, this is very threatening. We become fearful about our future. That's just another example. And of course, fatigue and failure. Sometimes life is hard. Sometimes we get tired. Sometimes we're in the middle of a project. We're in the middle of something in our lives. And we get tired and we get weary. And things begin to go wrong in our life. And we begin to fail. And we can begin to catastrophize in our lives. I know none of you would ever do that. But it does happen. The workers are getting tired and there's so much rubble to be moved. We'll never be able to build this wall by ourselves. Oh, there's so much work to be done. Oh, so much work to be done. You know, sometimes we can have this thing going on in our heads. That there's so much to be done, but there's not nearly as much done as we think that there needs to be done. But beside the point, these guys were literally halfway through building the wall. The book rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem and they looked around them and they said we've been working our backsides off and here we are we're still only halfway through the wall the workers are exhausted there's rubble everywhere we will never be able to finish this job and they became discouraged because they were tired and they began to fail because they were tired fatigue is a great one let's don't ever forget this when you're tired you don't think straight okay don't forget this whatever happens to your body happens to your soul if you're exhausted tired, you're not going to be praying down heaven and seeing the sunshine, rainbows and lollipops everywhere. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. You're not going to see it because what happens to our bodies happens to our souls. And so sometimes we become tired and discouraged and so we face that. We face that and we become discouraged. And that's, these are just three small examples. But I want to look, jump into the New Testament and look at a guy, you know, you're familiar with him, Paul the Apostle. And Paul the Apostle writes this letter to the Christians in the city of Corinth. 
And it's the second letter that he writes to them. And in this letter, it's probably his most honest, it's his most revealing, it's his most heartfelt letter as he writes to the people and talks to them about what happened to him and about some of the testing times that he and his companions had gone through. And all you've got to do is get into chapter one and you can see what they had faced. Here's what he writes. We think you ought to know, dear brothers and sisters, about the trouble we went through in the province of Asia, modern day Turkey. We were crushed and overwhelmed beyond our ability to endure. We thought we would never live through it. In fact, we expected to die. They're out there. They're preaching the gospel. They're building up Christians. They're planting churches. Jesus appears to Paul, calls him personally, gives him clear instructions about what he wants him to do. And yet in the middle of all that, he faces being crushed and overwhelmed beyond his ability to endure. He thinks he's going to die. That's how bad it becomes. That's how discouraged he is. He becomes so utterly discouraged that he thinks he's going to die. This guy has written two-thirds of the New Testament and he thinks he's going to die because he's so discouraged by the troubles that come into his life. And you think you might be immune? Imagine your situation. You're trying to serve God. You're doing your best. And then somebody comes along and just discourages you. Imagine how difficult that would be. Because, you know, you know, there's some people, they've got the gift of discouragement. Do you know the type of people who've got the gift of discouragement? Do you know those type of people? You tell them, you know, I'm going to, I've applied for five jobs. And they say, you know, they say, I don't think you're going to get any of those. Nah. They say, I'm going to ask that girl to marry me. <laughs> she wouldn't touch you with a barge pole. You know, that kind of encouraging, uplifting feeling you get sometimes. You know, like, you, you say to them, I'm going to ask the boss for a raise. And they say to you, well, I don't know, I don't think you're going to get that money. I don't, I don't think so. You're not worth that kind of money. Come on. You know the variety? Has anybody ever met somebody with the gift of discouragement? Yeah, don't put up your hand, please. Um, <laughs> like if you were in America, right, and you said, you know something? I'm going to apply for five jobs. Like your friends would say, hey, go for it, Buck. It's called Buck. Go for it, Buck. You're going to get all five of those jobs. You're going to knock it out of the park. Living like with a hurley like, is it? No, no, you're gonna knock it out of the park. It's gonna be amazing. I'm gonna ask my boss for a raise. Yeah, you do that, man. You're gonna get that raise. You're gonna do it. You can do it. Not in Ireland. Not in Ireland, though. No, no. I was going to apply for the job, or I wouldn't bother if I was you. Life is a lot easier on the social welfare, you know. Oh, no, I wouldn't try that. I was going to ask that girl to go out with me. Oh, I'd say she wouldn't touch you with a barrel full, you know. Oh, she, she thinks you're desperate ugly altogether. You see, we've got these people who... You see, a few years ago, we were... Elma and I, and um, I remember Andrew and Rebecca and a couple of other people, we were leading this Friday night kids' work called Godzilla Friday. And Godzilla Friday went on... We were over in Deer Park. We did it for about, I don't know, six, seven, seven years. Like, seven years we did Godzilla Friday. For. So every Friday night, we got together about, you know, somewhere between, like, 30 and... 60 young wild kids, they're all primary school age kids, mainly boys, some girls, and they came and they played soccer and they were just feral in the, in the school for a few, for a few hours and we, we did Bible stories and lessons with them and they, they played soccer, but they were wild, they were wild kids, my own were wild too, because they were just set free, it was Friday night, they didn't have to obey the rules of school anymore. So somebody, I asked somebody, would they give us a hand to do a small project with the kids? And they said, um, yeah, I'd love to come along and help you with the kids, I think it's a great work, come on, I'd love to come along help you with the kids. I said, yeah, I'd like you to do this project. It was like a craft project with the kids, you see. So the guy comes along on the Friday night and 
we go into this room and we bring all the mad wild kids all sugared up and all energyed up into the room and he begins to do this craft lesson with the kids but he's constantly being interrupted and all of the leaders spend all of our time going shh shh sit down sit down calm down shh you hate sit, sit down shh while the guy's trying to teach the lesson. But the kids are loving it. They're drawing stuff and they're making stuff, but they're kind of wild and they're full of energy. As you know, hello, they're kids. That's what they do. If anybody has children who are expecting to be quiet in the corner, God bless you, you're in for some trouble. So anyway, we do this lesson and uh, it was a little bit wild. It was a little bit harem scarum. It was a little bit crazy. And then when the lesson was all over, we blew the whistle and all the kids went back into the main hall and began to play football and get drinks and sweets and all this kind of stuff. And I thought it was a great time. So as we were leaving, I come up with this guy and I say, listen, thank you so much for coming along tonight and doing that lesson with the kids. That craft, it was really, really good. Thank you so much. And he stopped dead cold and looked me squarely in the eye and he said, I don't know what you're trying to do here, but you're failing. <laughs> Hallelujah. <laughs> thank you, bro. <laughs> thank you for your encouragement, brother. Let me just shake your hand. It was so discouraging. My heart sank, I thought. Oh, have I wasted my time completely? But I gotta tell you something. Over the seven years of this club, hundreds of parents thanked us, blessed us, patted us on the back, encouraged us, were so delighted, gave us presents at Christmas because we were looking after the kids. They just absolutely loved hundreds and hundreds of parents to that. But you know the one that I listened to? That one voice that said, I don't know what you're doing here, but you're failing. Thank you, Jesus. I felt so blessed and encouraged. But you see, we have this ability to tune in to that negative voice. It's just something we're just wired to as human beings. More on that maybe next week we'll get to that. So Paul writes, he says, we're doing the best we can. We're trying to serve God. And we go through all of this experience. And then Paul writes this, he says, but this, but as a result, he said, we stopped relying on ourselves and learned to rely on God who raises the dead. We thought we were going to die. But instead, we end up relying on God who raises the dead. And you see, here's a confession from Paul, the great apostle. He would openly admit we had begun to rely on our own abilities, our own knowledge, our own resources, and our own strength. You cannot build the kingdom of God in your own strength. You cannot build the purposes of God in your own strength. You cannot come into the things of God in your own strength. They are the things of God. They will come from God and they will be led by God. Amen. He was relying on himself. And he said he did rescue us from mortal danger and will rescue us again. We've placed our confidence in him and he will continue to rescue us. And so I get to, if you will, the heart of why I think it is that we get so discouraged. Why we're so easily discouraged. The Christian preacher and writer, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, summed it up in a book I was just reading last week uh, called Spiritual Depression, Its Causes and Cures. He summed it up really simply when he was examining one parable in that book. And he said this. He said, we get discouraged when our eyes are on ourselves. That's when we get discouraged. When we begin to fight the good fight ourselves. 
when we try to achieve the things of God, ourselves. When we try to walk into God's purposes, ourselves. We get discouraged when we look at ourselves because we are guaranteed to fail as human beings. It's part of the human condition. So take comfort this morning. If you've been looking at yourself too much, you need to look elsewhere. I suggest you fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the side of the Father. Say, think about him who endured such suffering. Think about him who endured such suffering. Put your eyes on him. And the key to it is this, to keep looking up. It was one of these things that used to be say, we used to say all the time as Christians when I was young, you'd say to somebody when they were going away, keep looking up, keep looking up. It was like some kind of a jizz up to kind of cheer somebody up. But when we look up, something interesting happens, believe it or not. You see, the Bible knows something that psychologists are only know, discovering. And that is that when we look up, our mood improves. Physically, when we look up, our dopamine and serotonin levels actually become um, improved. It's called cognitive embodiment. The idea is that the way that we think affects the way our bodies and the way that our bodies are affects the way we think. It's a feedback loop. The point was this, the point was this, and some research did discover that when you look above the plane of this level, as in what they call the horizon line, when you lift your eye above it, you actually get an experience that is almost transcendent. You, when you begin to look up, you begin to experience something completely different in your mind, in your body, and in your soul. And when you think about it, it makes absolutely perfect sense because the Bible has been saying for years, lift up your eyes, I started with it this morning, lift up your eyes to the hills, lift it up to the Lord. We look to you, O Lord. We lift up our eyes. When you think about it, the other way around, we talk about people feeling down. Feeling down. They talk about people feeling low or depressed. And if you actually look at someone, here's a little experiment you can try at home, right? Here's an experiment you can try at home. Just spend half an hour this afternoon walking around the house, walking around the house like a zombie. No, you don't have to make the noises, okay? But just walk around with your shoulders hunched forward and your head down. And what you'll notice after a while is that you begin to feel more tired and more fatigued and more depressed. And more down because your head is down, because your, 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 your body is telling your mind you're down. You're down in yourself, down the dumps. But if you stand up and pull yourself up to your full height, as my father would have said, Donovan, pull yourself up to your full height and lift up your head, your energy levels increase. Your happiness levels increase. It's really, really simple. Just look up. Just look up. Amen. And on that we close in prayer, Lord. Let's look up. Here's what Paul wrote. He said, we're pressed on every side by troubles, but we are not crushed. We're perplexed, but not driven to despair. We're hunted down, but we are never abandoned by God. Imagine what you're facing. We get knocked down, but we are not destroyed. Hallelujah. He says this, that is why we never give up. Though our bodies are dying, our spirits are being renewed every day. For our present troubles are small and won't last very long. Hear what the Apostle is saying to you this morning by the Holy Spirit. Your present troubles are small and they won't last very long. It's not going to be the rest of your days. How many people, how many parents have heard, say a teenage child, say, I hate my life. Because I hate your life. What, what do you mean you hate your life? Yeah, I hate my life. There's so much stuff going wrong in my life. L- like what specifically? Uh, uh. <laughs> Normally goes something like that. 
Our present troubles are small and they won't last very long. They're not going to last in your life for the rest of your days. And yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them all and will last forever. Can I get an amen? amen? And then he says this. So we don't look at the troubles we can see now. We don't look at those troubles. It doesn't mean we walk around blindfolded or close our eyes. But we don't look at them. We don't fill our gaze with the troubles that we see now. Rather, we fix our eyes on things that cannot be seen. They lift up their eyes to heaven and say, Lord, I love it. It says in Hebrews chapter 11 that Moses left Egypt because he kept his eyes on him who could not be seen. He kept his eyes on him who could not be seen. How do you keep your eyes on him who cannot be seen? You keep looking up. You keep trusting God. You say, I don't care how bad the situation is. I'm going to lift up my eyes and I'm going to trust in God. But the things that we see now, the things we, sorry, forgive me. He says, for the things we see now will soon be gone. Soon be gone. Hallelujah. But the things we cannot see will last how long? Forever. Forever. The things we can't see will last forever. This is very important. If you've got trouble in your life today, I want to tell you something about that trouble. It says nothing about your life. If you're discouraged today, it says nothing about your life. It still means God's purposes and plans are going to be worked out. You may be pressed, but you're not crushed. You're persecuted, but you're not abandoned. You may be struck down, but you will not be destroyed in Jesus' name. Amen. That's, and so he talks about, let's lift, keep our eyes, keep our eyes looking up. Keep our eyes looking up. So I want to propose three things that I think will help to um, destroy um, discouragement. There are three things. They're not absolutes. They're not, this is the full and final. There are lots and lots of ways in which we can defeat discouragement. But we want to defeat discouragement in our lives using three things, okay? Are you with me for the last couple of minutes? Are you with me for the last, last three things? Let's, let's bear with me. I'm sure I'll try not to bore you. Here we go. First things first. Has anybody here ever heard of the Zygarnik effect? Zygarnik effect. Put your hand up. Where's all the psychologists? Zygarnik effect. Zygarnik effect. Nobody's heard of the Zygarnik effect. Good. Then I can just make something up. So there's this, this woman. There's a very famous psychologist called Bluma Zygarnia. She was a Hungarian psychologist. And she discovered something that the Bible knew for thousands of years. But everybody went, wow, well, wouldn't you know? Anyway, so she discovered this thing. So she is sitting in a cafe in Vienna. In Vienna, in the 1920s, she's sitting in a cafe, and she observes something. And what she observes is that the, 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 the waiters who are taking the orders are really good at remembering what the orders are. So they would go to someone and say, so, can you get you? So you can have to have the German accent, but can I get you? This is, I have the strudel and the coffee and the cream in the strudel and the coffee. Thank you, said, yes, 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 I'm going to get the order. And he goes to the next person, he says, and what can I get you? So he says, I will have the Wiener schnitzel, but I will also have the strudel and the coffee and the cream in the coffee. So he goes off and he gets that order. But then when the person goes to pay, the waiter says, what was it that you had again? I had the strudel and the Wiener schnitzel and the coffee with the cream. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he charged them. And what she observed was this, that some people, particularly these waiters, are very good at remembering what they have yet to do. They're very good at remembering what's still to be done in their lives. And I think lots of Christians, because we talk, and I talk a lot about having vision and having purpose and having plan for lives, is that our heads are always out there. And we do the one thing that God continually tells us to do. And that is remember what God has done. Because he's going to do it 
again, hear this. I remember, said the psalmist in 143, to think about the many things you did in years gone by. I remember, I, I make a deliberate decision. I remember to think about them and I go, this is how God has behaved in this situation before in my life and he will behave like that again by God's grace. Can I get an amen? You see, what will happen to you is something like this. You will get married on a beautiful summer's day in 1991 to the love of your life in the middle of July, or early July actually. And then you'll wake up one morning in, in June 2023 and you'll go, ah, I'm 55 years of age, what happened to my life? And you forget about all the stuff that has happened in all of your life and all the stuff that has gone down and all the ways that God has blessed you and God has provided for you and God has opened doors and he's closed doors and opened windows and given you favor with people and the way he's managed to guide and direct your life all of those years. You just forget it because you're so concentrated on what the next thing is. That's a devilish design, if I ever heard of one, to keep you focusing on the next thing all the time. Well, we get to that some other day. I remember to think about it. Remember this? You need to remember. That's one of the ways to defeat discouragement. How has God behaved in this way in my life before? How have I faced this hurdle before? And trust God, he will do the same again. Can I get an amen? amen? That's why David was able to say, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Hallelujah. Here's another way to defeat it. And that is to break the curse of comparison. Because we compare our lives. We compare our lives. We compare everything about our lives to other people. It's the way that we, we achieve what are called social norms. We compare. We're always comparing our lives. Like you're comparing yourself on Instagram to super good looking guys and good looking girls and people who are rich and driving Maseratis and Bugattis and Ferraris and cars whose names I can't even pronounce who've got perfect hair and perfect teeth and who are groomed to within an inch of their existence. We're comparing ourselves to them all of the time. We're not comparing ourselves to the average Joe. Like, you, sit, you think about if you sit down to watch a Netflix movie. Okay, you sit down to watch a Netflix movie. Imagine now, poor, my poor wife, okay? So, Elma, sorry, Darren, I'm going to use an example. So, we're sitting down to watch a movie on Netflix. We don't have Netflix. Uh, uh, so, we're sitting down to watch a movie on Netflix. And who's on Netflix? There's Ryan Gosling. Or there's George Clooney. And they're all full of debonair movements and looks and winks and smiles. And, and then there's a Brad Pitt comes on and Elma's sitting there, she's watching this movie. And then she looks up the couch. <laughs> Hi. And he has the look in his eye like, Hi, baby. How am I going to compete with George Clooney, for goodness sake? But we do, we compare ourselves all the time. It's like back to that teenager I mentioned a while ago. I hate my life. What's, what, what, what's wrong with your life? And like, I think that the great question to ask is this. Compared to what? Your life is awful compared to what? The tribes of Upper Borneo? <laughs> well, is that what you're comparing? Are you comparing yourself to the members of Islamic State? Is that what you're comparing your life to? Are you comparing your life to the people who live in the lower Ecuadorian forest? Who have no water and have to eat berries and fight off snakes and wild monkeys? Is that who you want to compare yourself to? Or do you want to compare yourself to the people who are being bombed in Ukraine? Your life is awful compared to your apartment being blown up and you have no electricity and you have no water. Compared to what? And brothers and sisters, can I just tell you this? The devil will be on your shoulder and say, compare, look at your life compared to, take your pick. Yeah. Because I guarantee you, 
No two lives are the same. You will have less money than some, more money than others. You will be better looking than some, you will be worse looking than others. By what crazy cultural standard we ever use. Stop comparing yourself with others. There's only one person to whom we are to compare ourselves. Can anybody take a guess who that might be? Jesus. The only person. The only person in the Bible we're told to compare ourselves to. Compare ourselves to Jesus. Follow Jesus. Do what Jesus did. That's what we're told to compare ourselves to. Here's what Paul writes. He says, pay careful attention to your own work. I know I quoted this a couple of weeks ago. Then you will get the satisfaction of a job well done. And you will not need to compare yourself with anyone else. Our culture is such a culture of comparison. We're continually being comparing. But if you take the richest person in the world, I don't know, who is it at this stage? I don't know, some sultan somewhere probably. It's, a, it's, sorry, it's gone beyond Jeff Bezos. It's somebody else. Compare them to, the, say, a person who's just living an average life in, I don't know, Bangladesh, for, for, just for an example. You compare them. At the end of the day, all wealth is is a metric of comparison. It's just a metric of comparison. I'm wealthy. Yes, compared to who? Compared to, just for the record, for those of us who sit in this room this morning, we are all rich compared to 95% of the world's population. Compared to who? And yet we can feel poor. We can feel in want. We can feel in need. And the devil loves it when we're stuck in that little comparison bubble. He loves it. He loves it. Compared to who? Work out your own life as God gives you the grace to do it. Can I get an amen? Amen. So that's two ways. Here's the third way. Maybe the last way. The power of positive people. Get around God's people. Get around people who will do you good. That will help you to defeat discouragement. That will help you. Being around God's people will build you up. The odd time you will meet somebody with a gift of discouragement. But ignore them and get to the people who will encourage you. Can I get an amen? Amen. Here's how Paul writes to the Hebrews. He says, let's think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. And let's not neglect our meeting together. Do you know what encourages me to worship? When I see everybody else worshipping. I go, yeah, that's good and glad. Do you know what encourages me to pray? When I see other people praying. you know what encourages me to love? When I see other people loving. It's we see, we encourage one another, and we build one another up in our most holy faith, and we motivate one another, and we encourage one another all the time. Just being here today, I hope for you, is an encouraging experience. Well, one person said it wasn't. Anyway, moving on. Especially now as we see the day of his return drawing near. You see, when we talk about being discouraged, it's about the absence of courage. And sometimes we have to summon courage. We have to make a decision to be courageous to face whatever it is that we are facing. Now, I know you. You've got something going on in your life that you need to face. Something for which you need courage. Some people are very courageous. Some people aren't very courageous. And some people have no fear. Yeah, well, not having no fear isn't courageous. F- courage is not the absence of fear. It is the decision to continue on in the face of fear. That's what courage actually is. And so I want to pray this morning as we close that we would have courage. Does anybody here need courage? Because I need courage. Because I know the complexity of your life. There are decisions. There are choices. There are conversations. There are people to speak to. Situations to face. For which we just need courage. Are you with me? And and why do we have courage? Because we can psych ourselves up to it. Not at all. Look at what it says in Deuteronomy. Maybe the band will come up guys. You're going to make your way up. Look at the call to courage in Deuteronomy chapter 1. Moses 
or 31, forgive me, Moses is writing to the, to the Israelites. And this is what he says to them. He says, don't be afraid or discouraged. Why? For the Lord will personally go ahead of you. He will be with you. He will neither fail you nor abandon you. The reason for courage wasn't because you're a big strong guy or a big strong gal. It was because the Lord will be with you wherever you go. You are not alone in the trials and troubles and struggles that you face. The Lord is with you. Can I get an amen? And you see, moreover, in the New Testament, it's even better because we now talk about Christ being in us. Paul talks in Colossians that Christ is actually in us by his Holy Spirit. So of course he's with us wherever we go because he lives in us by his Holy Spirit. Hallelujah. So that means you can face your situations with courage knowing that God is with you. God is with you. First of all, there's the call to courage, but it goes better. I'm going I'm to up it, just turn up one more click, and that is there's also the command to courage. In fact, the Lord doesn't give his people a choice. He says, you must be courageous because it's not possible to live the Christian life without courage. It's not possible to live the Christian life without knowing that God is with you. Here he writes, here this is um, the Lord speaking to Joshua. He's about to enter the land of Canaan. There's trouble, there's trial, there's battle, there's war ahead. And so he says to him, don't be afraid of discourage. Here's what he says. He says, this is my command. Be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid or discouraged, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Wherever you go, whatever you face, the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. With